Thank you for joining me for this teaching from Pennington AG Church. We are into our third week of a series called Reclaiming Revival, where we are looking at the desire for God to breathe life into people and systems that are dead and dying. What does it mean if we strip away all the cultural context of revival and seek God to do a new work, a new breakthrough, new life in the church today? In our third week, we're beginning with a simple question. What breaks your heart? What burdens you? What are you dissatisfied with? What hurts you about this world? Whether it's your own individual body and experience, relationships that you have, the modern church itself, or the world. Where do you have burdens that you're bringing before God of, I, I just, I can't stand that the world is this way. This hurts me. Experts say that when giving to a charity or an organization, you shouldn't give to the best or most efficient or effective organization. You should give to the one that connects to your heart. You will stick with it much longer. You will give much more and you will be more of an evangelist or outreach member of that organization when it connects closely to your heart and it's personal. We do this with Kingdom Builders, which is our missional organizational fund, which we say goes to three areas, global missions, local church expansion, and future Christian leaders. These are strategic because these are the three main areas as followers of Jesus that we have passions over or that break our hearts. Some of you may have a big burden for the lost to hear the gospel on the far ends of the earth and hear stories of missionaries in Fiji or in Latin America spreading the gospel and you may have a deep burden for that. Or you may have a deep burden for local missions here, whether it's food banks or caring for those who are vulnerable and food insecure in our neighborhoods, or perhaps you have a burden for the church to grow and to plant new churches and see pastors come like Pastor Frank planting a new church in Heightstown, or you have a deep desire to support the next generation and those raising up and finding their callings in Christ. And so in that, we bring them all together and really, I don't even care what your entry point is, what you're passionate about and burdened for, we come together as a church and then that moves us together in our own missional revival. Jeremiah chapter eight, verse 21. Jeremiah is an Old Testament prophet who is known for having burdens and known for being very vocal about when he's dissatisfied and when he's hurting himself. And famously, he has two chapters, chapter eight and chapter nine, where he's really vulnerable about taking on the burdens of his people. And it goes like this, Jeremiah chapter eight, verse 21. He writes, I hurt with the hurt of my people. I mourn and I'm overcome with grief. You may be this way in some area of your life where you are overcome with grief that the world isn't the way it should be, that it's unfair and that people live without the knowing knowledge of the love of Jesus Christ or just that they can't even provide. I hurt with the hurt of my people. It's binding our hearts together with burdens and hurts in this world and inviting God into our pain. When it comes to revival, you may have a desire or an ideal, well, I want my heart to break for what breaks God's heart. And that Hillsong song, Hosanna, break my heart for what breaks yours, God. I, I want that. And there are three main areas when we read scripture theologically where God's heart breaks. Chaos breaks God's heart. 
That's actually one of the driving forces from Genesis 1 to Revelation. And what Jesus even does with his life is brings order from chaos. And so chaos relationally, chaos communally, chaos in our physical lives, brokenness, injuries, illnesses, death, and disease. The chaos of the world breaks his heart. God desires for a world that is orderly and good and filled with joy. Second is injustice. Injustice breaks God's heart when his people, his image bearers, are taken advantage of and are hurt and are oppressed and are used and abused, this breaks God's heart as well. And we see the prophets, the main thread of the prophets in the Old Testament is God's heart for his people who are treated unjustly. And then third, we see pride as an area that breaks God's heart. The pride of human beings, we want to do it our own way and do it in our own strength and have no desire for the creator's input and the creator's power and provision in our lives. These are the three main driving forces in scripture of what breaks God's heart, whether it's chaos, whether it's injustice, or whether it's pride. And I'm saying all of those because to begin You may aim for that and you want to pray towards that direction. And as we grow, God will bind us with his heart. But to start today, I'm going to ask you not even to focus on those three. What I want you to do and where a revival begins is where we draw out the burdens of our hearts of who we are. Don't try to manufacture some theological high thing and and bind into, you know, it's the chaos of the world that binds my heart. And I articulate, don't start there. Start with you. What has God put on your heart? How has God made you and the life that you've lived uniquely? What hurts you? And where do you have the strongest burdens? Let's begin with what God has placed on each of us individually and allow him to work and grow from there. Because revival begins with a dissatisfaction with the brokenness of our world. And the world is and can be broken in many, many ways. Poverty, oppression, sexual sin, greed, lack of worship and reverence. The world is broken in many ways and each of us will enter into prayer and grieving from a different point of what is broken. Brene Brown, a powerful speaker and author on vulnerability, says this about brokenness and hope. She says, hope is a function of struggle. Hope is born out of our struggle. Hope is born out of the struggle that I don't want the world to be this way. I'm not going to be satisfied with the brokenness and hurt around me. I'm going to hope despite what the world is like currently. Jesus of Nazareth says it this way in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Pick up their burden, pick up their death to self daily, die to ourselves daily so that the burden of our hearts can be expressed along with Christ Jesus. The psalmist joins into this area of grieving. We can see this in Psalm 13 verses 1 through 2 and maybe see if this resonates with you, your prayer life, or your expectation of the world. O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Revival is not a shortcut 
past suffering through emotionalism. It's not a way to jump over the process of suffering and grieving by just being more passionate in our prayer life. Revival is a season of breakthrough produced by a season of waiting and suffering and longing for God to heal what is broken. And as we wait, the desire for God to speak life into what is dead and dying builds in us. We're going to walk through and our main look today is going to be a teaching model called the Breakthrough U-Curve. It's a breakthrough model. We can put the chart up here. As you see it, it is a growth model of our own faith and our own hope through trusting God, being reminded of his goodness, testing it, seemingly being dissatisfied with our own expectations in order to crucify our hope at the foot of the cross and build back into humble, persevering, breakthrough hope and faith. We're going to look at this process today. This is at the heart of it, and it begins with the burden. Let's start here. A holy discontent. Breakthrough typically begins with dissatisfaction with the status quo. As we've taught throughout this, historically, that's where it begins. It begins in the Wesleys with a family that has been through a lot of dissatisfaction and hurt. It begins with the Franciscans, with St. Francis, who has lived through a lot of pain and dissatisfaction. It begins in the Pentecostal movement at the early 20th century over racial divisions and a desire for restoration. It begins out of dissatisfaction for the pain of this world. Something we have accepted in our life as it's just the way the world is. It's just unfair. Politicians are just corrupt. Things don't always work out. It's broken. It's not. Eventually, we move to a point where we say, I just can't accept that anymore. I want the world to change. And honestly, to take this first step of discontent is not a pleasurable process. It is inviting ourselves to feel again, to hurt again to have a burden again. Our way of surviving the world is often to stop feeling. In beginning the process of revival, we have to start by feeling our discontent again. There are two ways that we walk through discontent. First is we smother it. We smother it with activity. Netflix, I'm just going to binge until I don't feel anymore and I'll keep a show on until I fall asleep so there's no possible gap where I have to be reminded of my hurt and feel it again. Or I just work like crazy and if I just keep making more money, if I just keep getting validated by my skills, I won't have to think about or feel. Or simply common busyness, our work, our social life, the entertainment we walk through, I will schedule my life so active that I don't have to be reminded of the brokenness of this world. So we can smother it just with activity. Or two, we surrender to it. And we just say, that's life, baby. It's broken. It's just how it is. We accept it. We end up becoming somebody who is pessimistic, jaded, and bitter. So we either just ignore it or we just submit into it and we say, life is unfair. Jesus tells us, And he begins his longest teaching in the Gospels by saying the people who are discontent and own their discontent and recognize the burden are the people who will be blessed. 
This is another way of reading the Beatitudes. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says things like, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. The poor in spirit, those who are poor and recognize they don't have enough in this world. Or he says, God blesses those who mourn. God blesses those who grieve over loss, over oppression, over hurt. And he says, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. Those who hunger and thirst for the unfair treatments in the world that they will be made right. He says, it is blessing to have a burden for this world. God takes our discontent and when we bring it to him, he begins to shape it for a burden for his kingdom. Peter, in Luke 5, 1 through 11, has a discontent over not being able to be a good fisherman. Before he knows Jesus, right in the beginning of his call to follow Jesus, Peter is a fisherman. And apparently, at this stage of his life, he's not a very good one. He's going through a dry spell. And he hasn't caught any fish, even though he worked all day the day before and fished all through the night. It has not been a good catch. And there is a dissatisfaction in Peter over wanting to provide, be a good fisherman, provide for his family. And Jesus in this story pushes Peter. He says to him, hey, why don't you go out and fish again? Toss your nets down. See if you'll catch anything now. And it's shades of things we've studied in this series. Peter in a moment saying, no, I've resolved myself that this is not going to be a good day, that I'm not going to be good at this right now. And Jesus saying, hope again, believe again. Peter begrudgingly says, all right, I'll go out and I'm going to do it again. Cast the net, the famous story. They catch so many fish. The ship is going to break. Other ships have to come over and they have to help carry the load. The nets are breaking. It's a tug of war. It's such an amazing bounty. Peter then recognizes what Jesus is saying to him. Peter, hope again. Hope, believe, I can do good things in your life. I want to bless your life. And as Peter then says, but I'm not good enough for this, Jesus. Just leave me. You clearly are too good for me. And so leave. And Jesus then says, Peter, leave your net and become a fisher of men. He takes Peter's discontent with his physical life And he says, you can reach that goal, but I'm going to challenge you to have a bigger, wider, more kingdom-minded goal. And while you have been dissatisfied with being able to provide by being a fisherman, I'm going to challenge you with a holy discontent for all of my people and that you would become a fisher of men. God takes the area we're discontent, whether it might be small in our job or our life, our relationships, And when we bring it to him, he lets us know that that discontent is just the beginning of everything that is broken. But he is the beginning of the satisfaction of that hope. Peter has to be honest with what he's wanted. And all throughout the Gospels, we see Peter honest about his dissatisfaction, about who he wants Jesus to be, the status he wants in the kingdom under Jesus, his passion for him and how he wants to be the best disciple. When we bring our dissatisfaction before God, it allows him to transform it into a dissatisfaction that the kingdom of God has not yet come. Being honest with our discontent allows God to shape us into kingdom burdens. 
Charles Spurgeon, a theologian of the mid-20th century, says it like this. Do not ask for what some tell you that you should ask for, but for that which you feel the need of, that which the Holy Spirit has made you to hunger and thirst for. You ask for that. And so as we begin a hunger for revival, begin with what you're hungry for in your life and honestly bring that before God. Begin to meet God in your heart. What do you have a burden for? Is it a burden for your marriage? For your health, for your children, your finances, your community, racial dynamics, politics, your country, the whole world? Where is your burden? And begin there and invite God to speak into your discontent with how the world currently is. Nothing is off limits for the Holy Spirit to work in us, through us, and to shape and use. Take your holy discontent and use it as an entry point into God's power. So we begin with our holy discontent. Something is broken in the world. And then we move into the next stage of this, which is untested faith. A burden and a desire is a great place to begin, but it's not enough. If it's just a burden and a desire, we're just dissatisfied, angry, bitter people. We then have to move into untested faith. And this is to bring and to study the character of God and the promises which he has fulfilled in scripture and throughout history, we have to fill ourselves with these stories. Fill ourselves with the theology of who our God is, who Jesus is, what he has done, and begin to feel excitement over that, passion over that. Read stories where God has responded to suffering and fulfilled the cries of his people. Stories like, Exodus chapter 3, where Moses meets God at a burning bush. And God says to Moses, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. And so I have come down to rescue them. Be reminded that God has performed miracles and has set the captives free and has heard the cries of his people. Remind yourself of who Jesus says he is in Luke chapter 4 as Jesus takes on the burden of Isaiah in Luke chapter 4 verses 17 through 19. This is who Jesus says he is. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Be reminded of the character of our God and the promises he fulfills. And then read in Revelation the promises God will fulfill and who Jesus will be as he returns one day. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, they say about Jesus in this, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seal and open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Build untested faith by reading the stories of who God is and how he has been faithful. Build your faith 
by understanding the character of God. At the core of it, read the stories of Jesus and be exposed to his character and his goodness and his gentleness and his love and be reminded that this is the God we pray to. This is the God we bring our discontents to. The God who every time he was on earth and saw the discontent, he responded and he healed and he fulfilled. Build your faith in his character. At this stage, fight the urge to rationalize and to bring jaded understandings into what God is doing. As someone's building their faith or as you are building your faith in reading scripture, try to fight the temptation to say, yeah, well, that doesn't happen today. Or yeah, well, that was a very different context. Or yeah, well, but I don't think that's going to happen in my life. Or yeah, but, but avoid the buts in doing this exercise. Allow yourself to be filled with expectation and faith and joy. Don't try to understand it. Don't try to rationalize it, but allow faith in God's character to build in you. Think of it as coming into a wedding and don't be that guy at the wedding that comes up to the couple and is like, happy wedding, so glad to be here with you, but you know marriage is a real tough time and you know you, you this it's not all gonna be a party. Don't be that guy. Don't be that person in faith as we're allowing God to fill us. Yes, of course, there are trials and suffering and difficult moments to walk through. We're about to address that. But as you are building untested faith, let it be unbridled. Don't throw water too quickly on the fire as God kindles it and builds it in us. Let yourself be filled with hope. Okay, so now we have a holy discontent, and then moved into an untested faith. And now the faith is going to be tested in this next stage of the crucified hope. Once our faith is building, we move into the crucified hope aspect. Once we begin to believe our God can do anything, we need to learn that it doesn't mean he's going to do everything we want him to do in exactly the way we think it should be done. You're going to build your faith and there are going to be moments of your life where your faith gets built and then you have very concrete expectations on God. And in these moments, we need to crucify our hope before God and learn that we are not the masters of the future of what God wants to do. God operates outside of time and continually has the full picture in mind. We see as if through a tiny pinhole of time and space, God sees the full picture. And when we bring our needs before him, when we bring our holy discontents before him, he may resolve it in a way we cannot even imagine. And this is where we take our faith and we bring it before him to be expanded and deepened and brought higher. In Matthew 16, Peter confesses to Jesus that he is the Savior and the Son of God. He has built his untested faith. Jesus, you can do anything. You are the Messiah. You are son of God here on earth and you are powerful. I believe that Jesus can do anything, Peter says. And Jesus is going to take this world by storm and it's going to be win after win. Rome is not going to be able to stand against Jesus. The Pharisees aren't going to be able to stand against Jesus. And we are going to conquer this world. But then you know what happens to Peter? Is he watches Rome and the Pharisees stop Jesus. And he sees them crucify Jesus. And his untested faith 
now faces the crucifixion. And he has to take his expectations on who Jesus was and is and let them die and be reborn in God's wisdom. Because Peter has unbridled faith, but then comes the crucifixion, and then comes Saturday, a full day of believing he had lost, of believing that God couldn't have done it or wasn't going to do it or couldn't have answered his prayers, wasn't capable of being the Messiah or never was the Messiah. Peter has to take his faith and live through this. Before Sunday comes, Peter learns that his faith is being tested. His hope is able to grow resilient. In crucified hope, we have to learn not to give up our hope in who God is and what he can do when it doesn't seem to be moving in the time and manner that we expected. Romans chapter 8, verses 24 through 25. Paul writes this to the church in Rome. He says, We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. Can our faith wait patiently and confidently? After a moment at an altar where God speaks into our life and begins a healing transformation process, but then we go back out and we make the same dumb mistakes and make the same hurtful choices, and we say, God, where were you in this? Can we patiently return back to him and return back to the cross? When we pray for God for healing and the person isn't healed in that moment or isn't healed in the way we thought they would be, can we return back to God and still trust him and trust that he is bigger and deeper? Can our faith persevere through the crucifixion of Friday and the waiting of Saturday into the revival resurrection of Sunday? I was called into ministry when I was 17 years old. I then went away to college and I studied religion, sociology, involved in campus ministries. And I came back and I took my first job, which was here at the church. I now get to pastor and I was the uh, assistant youth pastor. And I wasn't paid and I painted houses on the side. And that is not a gangster metaphor. I literally painted houses for a company and I worked in the basement. I actually worked in the basement where we record these online sermons. I was in the corner of it and I had no phone. I had my cell phone and it didn't get reception in the basement. So I had to put it on the door and crack the door open so I could get reception. And then I could kind of walk to get my phone and and try to answer if people were calling. I had a giant desktop computer with a hard line in that was slow. And that's how I would work when I would volunteer a couple days a week doing that. And then it was 10 years later before getting to lead pastor And when I was 17 and called into ministry, I felt like God spoke things into my life about how he would work in me and through me in ministry. And I'll fully disclose to you right now, and I'll be vulnerable, at this period of my life now, 18 years later, I still haven't seen some of those come to pass. God still hasn't worked in the way he promised he would when he was 17. I'm in ministry and I am grateful I get to see God work. But some of the promises I felt spoken to me at the time, I haven't seen in ministry. This is God working to build trust. And I've learned to tell God, I don't mind what your timing is. Teach me and lead me and I'm going to walk forward expectantly 
for what you're going to do, but I'm crucifying my expectations of how and when you are going to do it. And this is what the crucifixion of hope does. It changes expectations into expectancy. And the difference of the nuance of these two words are in expectations, I have concrete understandings of how, when, and who God is going to do it. In expectancy, I have an understanding of God's character and that he will fulfill his promises. But I don't know how, when, and through who. And I trust that he is going to do it and it's going to be good, but he doesn't have to do it in a box that I've created for him. An unknown author once said, expectations are the building blocks of bitterness. When we tell God exactly how to work and exactly what to do, we are preparing ourselves to become bitter when God exceeds and moves past what we expected him to do. But if we walk with arms open, expecting the character of God to be good and to be capable, we expect great things. It's the crucifixion of our hope. Okay, so we started with a holy discontent and then we had untested faith, which moved into testing by a crucified hope where we said, God, I trust that you answer promises, but I'm not going to tell you exactly how to do your job. I'm going to walk forward in expectancy. For many of us, we then get to the toughest part of this, which is the crisis of faith, which is the moment where we went from unbridled, untested faith to a moment where it seems like God didn't answer it or work it that way. And we have to ask ourselves whether we're going to persevere through that or whether we're going to fall into a potential loop of despair. We have a burden for this world to change and we build our faith in God to respond. Then we realize it may not happen in the way or manner we expected. And now we walk into the crisis of faith. When it doesn't happen, when we pray for someone to be healed and they die, when we feel a specific calling of what God wants to do in our life and now it's a decade later and we're still not doing it, when we felt God was leading us into a relationship and it's fallen apart, what do we do and where do we go from there? Every follower of God for all of human history has walked through this moment. For many of us, it is moments plural. It is the process in which God matures us and develops us into people who expect revival more than people who expect God to fulfill our list of demands. The loop of despair spirals us down where we say that person wasn't healed that I prayed for healing for. Thus, God either A, doesn't heal or B, certainly won't heal through me. And so I'm not going to believe that anymore. I felt a calling in my life and it doesn't seem to be working out. So I just don't believe God has a calling for me and I'm not going to hope or believe in that anymore. Now we're like biblical stories of people who have said, God, I don't even want to hope at all. We become bitter. The joy drains from